The French had collapsed. The Dutch had been overwhelmed. The Belgians had surrendered. The British army, trapped, fought free and fell backward to the Channel ports, converging on a fishing town whose name was Dunkirk. It was England's greatest crisis since the Norman Conquest. Vaster than those precipitated by Philip II's Spanish Armada, Louis XIV's triumphant armies, or Napoleon's invasion barges. This time, Britain stood alone. If the Germans crossed the channel and established uncontested beachheads, all would be lost. For it is a peculiarity of England's island that its southern weald is indefensible against disciplined troops. Now, the 220,000 Tommies at Dunkirk, Britain's only hope, seemed doomed. On the Flanders beaches, they stood around in angular existential attitudes, like dim purgatorial souls awaiting disposition. There appeared to be no way to bring more home than a handful of men. The Royal, the Royal Navy's vessels were inadequate, King George VI had been told that they would be lucky to save 17,000. The House of Commons was warned to prepare for hard and heavy tidings. Then, from the streams and estuaries of Kent and Dover, a strange fleet appeared. Trawlers and tugs, scows and fishing sloops, lifeboats and pleasure craft. Smacks and coasters, the island ferry, Grand Fields, Tom Sopwith's America's Cup Challenger Endeavor, even the London's Fire Brigade, all of them manned by civilian volunteers. English fathers sailing to rescue England's exhausted, bleeding sons. Even today, what follows seems miraculous. Not only were Britain's soldiers say delivered, so were French support troops, a total of 338,682 men. That was an excerpt from William Manchester's biography of Winston Churchill, The Last Lion, a fascinating book. But it's stories like Dunkirk that make us especially grateful on a day like today of the sacrifice of men and women in our military. But even more so, stories like Dunkirk reveal how much joy can come from a great deliverance. You might be able to experience this in some measure if you've seen the film Dunkirk come out a couple of years ago. When those civilian fleets come and you see them on the horizon, you want to shout out for joy and then almost cry. It's just inspiring. I think that's because the more perilous the situation, the more glorious the deliverance. Today, we encounter what's a glorious deliverance. The crossing of the Red Sea is the moment perhaps most associated with the book of Exodus, and for good reason. This was a perilous, impossible situation, which makes the deliverance all the more glorious. In fact, in this story, glory doesn't go to fishermen or to the British spirit. Glory goes to the Almighty God. Now, taken in its larger context, the Red Sea crossing shows us more than God's special effect production capabilities. It shows us his powerful arm at work in grace for his people. Taken in its larger context, the Red Sea crossing shows us God with his people, not just in the time of their deliverance, but before, during, and after that time as well. He's with them every step of their journey. Now, Exodus is a book full of God getting glory, getting the credit, getting the praise, getting the honor. Today is no different. The main point for today is that God provides for every step of our journey, which gives us freedom, joy, and security, and gives him all the glory. We could summarize this passage or our sermon together be like this. God provides for every step of our journey, which gives us freedom, joy, and security, and gives him all the glory. 
As we continue in Exodus, we'll see how that pattern continues. And today, specifically, we'll see how that pattern continues for our journey as well. Now, if you've been with us the past several weeks, we've started our study in Exodus. I believe this is our fourth one, I think. Uh, We're taking it in bigger chunks. I've called it a safari jeep tour. All right, so it's not a plane. It's not a walking tour. It's a jeep tour. Sometimes we can get out and see smaller details, but we want to cover a large portion of land relatively quickly. So what we've seen in Exodus over the past few weeks is that this story began in Egypt. This is where the Israelites had been for some 400 years. Now, dark days had brewed in this land that was not their home. Israel experienced the reign of a new king, a new pharaoh, who did not know their predecessor, Joseph, who enslaved them and later enacted policies of genocide. But God knew all this. God saw all this, and God heard their prayers. God was still at work in Israel's dark days. He was preparing Moses to lead them out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land. And God intended to deliver his people out of Egypt in such a way that would decisively give him alone the glory. We saw that last week in the Ten Plagues as God displays his power and glory, that he alone is God over and against Pharaoh, over and against the Egyptian gods, that he alone can deliver. So that's where we ended this uh, last week, that God delivers from death and God delivers from his judgment. And we see how that final plague of death of the firstborn, uh, it came by a deliverance through a substitute, which points to the ultimate substitute, a lamb for the entire household of God, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God slain for us. Well, the Israelites today, they finally get to leave Egypt. But we still have questions. Questions like, well, what's going to happen now? Do they just ride off into the sunset like an old western? Will they truly leave Egypt behind? When we read this book, the book of Exodus, or we read the Pentateuch as a whole, the first five books of the Bible, we might think that there are several good ending points, kind of like the last Lord of the Rings. It's like, when is this over? (laughs) I think we could see another possible good ending point at the beginning of our passage. If you're not there yet, turn to Exodus 12, middle of the chapter, verse 33. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Exodus is the book. At 12 is the chapter number. That's the big number printed in bold letters. The verse number, 33, that's the small kind of footnote-like number after the chapter. So Exodus 12, starting at 33. I'm going to read through verse 42. You'll find it on page 54, the Bible that looks like this. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, All the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was at night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. If we ended it right here, that'd be a good ending, right? They're out of Egypt. They have exited. But alas, God knows that just like Celine Dion, Israel's hearts will go on after they leave Egypt. (laughs) He is with them 
every step of their journey. We'll see that for the rest of the book as well. As it's always been, salvation is of the Lord from first to last, from planning it to accomplishing it to applying it. Salvation is of the Lord. God is the one who saves, and God is faithful at every step of our journey, and God, therefore, gets glory at every step of our journey. So we see today that God's redeeming hand acts for his people before, during, and after this great act of deliverance that was the Red Sea crossing. So that relates to the outline of today's sermon. Three points. First, God provides. It's mainly dealing with what happens before the Red Sea. Second, God delivers, mainly dealing with the time during the Red Sea. And lastly, Israel responds, dealing with the time mainly after the Red Sea crossing. First point, God provides. My friend Mark is the most thoroughly prepared person I know. The place where you can see this in action, I think the best is his car. Now, Mark is a burly man from Texas. He has a great beard. And yet, he drives a light green Prius. (laughs) Now, the most special thing about this car is not its fuel efficiency. It's what's inside. Now, this is not a Toyota commercial, so bear with me. (laughs) Time after time, when I've ridden in Mark's car, he has things in the car that I didn't even know you would need while driving in a car. Now, simple things. Like, he has a spare pair of sunglasses for his passengers in case they don't have a pair. Uh, He has Altoids, uh, in case you have coffee breath. Uh, He has toothpicks, in case you have something stuck in your teeth. But then there are next-level things Mark has in his car. He has pouches of water for drinking, in case he's stranded somewhere in the desert. And he has paper towels. So I've used a pouch of water and paper towels to get mud off of my shoes after being someplace with Mark. He even has a sewing kit in his car. And I've seen Mark use this sewing kit after one of his buttons broke. (laughs) Mark is thoroughly prepared. He knows what he will need on his journey. So now, the time between Pharaoh telling Moses and Aaron, get out, up until the splitting of the Red Sea, There's some time in between there. It feels a little bit like filler text. It feels like God's trying to meet a word count on the paper he's turning in and has to put something in between the big important stuff. Well, here's another reminder, friends, that there are no wasted words in Scripture. It is entirely inspired by God. And what seems like filler text is actually God's faithful and thoughtful provision. So just notice a few things here. It would be really helpful if you have a Bible open, just glancing down at it. You begin in verses 33 to 36. God's thoughtful provision. You see, it's not just that the Israelites got up and left Egypt. That's stunning in itself. But the Exodus is even more stunning than that. One way it's that, and one way we might overlook, is the Egyptians essentially paid the Israelites to leave. Now, you compare this to the Reconstruction period in American history. Now, beyond the tragedy that was the institution of slavery itself, an overlooked tragedy is that when slaves were freed, they were told to enfold into society without having any education, without having any property, without having hardly any possessions. But with the Israelites, that was not the case. Yes, they were slaves. So they could ask, what would we have that would allow us to survive on our own, let alone survive in the wilderness for 40 years. Probably they didn't anticipate that. So what they received from the Egyptians then would allow them to do things like build the tabernacle, even barter for different kinds of metal from surrounding nations on their journey. So here's the crucial thing to notice about verses 33 to 36 and God's provision here. Israel didn't get this stuff because of their negotiating skills. They got this from the Lord's hand. Look at verse 36. He gave them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Lord provided sustenance. But we can keep going in what seems to be like filler texts. We see what the Lord gives them, uh, different feasts and different practices. 
Now, last week we were introduced to these feasts, Feast of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This week we get a little more details. So you look at verse 43, that's where the instructions start. And they start off in a strange way. They start off in a way that tells who is and who can't participate in these meals. You've got to remember, this wasn't just Israelites that came up out of Egypt. Look at verse 38. This was a mixed multitude that went up with them. So this was God's intention for Abraham's offspring, that they would be a blessing to all nations. So these people from other countries must have seen God's miraculous works and concluded that their best hope for life would be to align themselves with these people who have the one true God. Sort of like Ruth with Naomi at the very beginning of Ruth, where she tells her, your people will be my people and your God shall be my God. A mixed multitude. So God gives these instructions about these feasts. And God doesn't give them in order to exclude these foreigners who were with the Israelites. He gives them in order so that they could be included. So verse 48, the instruction was that in order to be included, the males must be circumcised. Now circumcision was a sign of those who were in the covenant community. And therefore could partake of the feast of the covenant meal and the covenant people. Friends, this isn't unlike baptism and the Lord's Supper today. Baptism is the sign that we've been brought into Christ's people and now partake, now we can partake of the meal of the new covenant people, the Lord's Supper. And this is the one thing uh, that informs us, uh, one thing that informs how we fence the Lord's Supper here. So again, friends, this is not God's restriction. This is his provision. Even in this filler text, he graciously provides instructions for how people can be included into the covenant community of God. So we go on into the next chapter, chapter 13. We find more instructions from verses 1 to 16. You just glance over that there. Even the headings help with that. This time it's the consecration of the firstborn. And it's more details on this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here, friends, God is providing. God provides ongoing reminders of who they are and what he's done for them. So again, these were provisions for the future. So God's thoughtful. God knows that just like all of us, the people of Israel are forgetful. Did you forget to bring anything this morning? Did you forget already what you had for breakfast? We are forgetful people. So God is thoughtful to provide reminders for his people. So chapter 13, take a look at verse 5, verse 10, verse 11. 5, 10, 11. You should see a pattern there. So these were things Israel was to do once they got into the promised land. Things they were to do year after year. Ongoing reminders. So for example, consecration of the firstborn. God told Israel that they had to sacrifice firstborn animals or, and buy back, that is redeem, firstborn sons. This is a reminder, verse 15 tells us, that God had redeemed their firstborn sons during the last plague of Egypt. They belonged to him. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread also looks backwards to what God did for them in Egypt and brings it into the present. So all these reminders, the firstborn, reminder of God had purchased them. Feast of the Passover, reminder that God had liberated them from death with a substitute of a lamb. Feast of Unleavened Bread, a reminder God liberated them from slavery and the feast itself reenacts their departure from Egypt. God is thoughtful even to remind his people of the past. So friends, we still think this is filler text. Still think God's trying to meet a word count. No, no, not at all. I want us to notice one more thing, though, about this section. You follow as I read, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 13. We'll read through a little bit of chapter 14. When Pharaoh let, go, let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that way was near. 
For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them in, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Ziphon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. God provides even here. What does he provide? In one word, guidance. God provides guidance. And we could say a couple of things about God's guidance here. The first is that he guided them to a place they would not have gone themselves. He led them to a place that was in front of a sea and had an army before them, trapped. But we also say, about his guidance, that even though he guides them to a peculiar place, he is still with them. His presence symbolized by the pillar of cloud and fire. So friends here, in this filler part of the text, God is with them every step of the journey. Even here in what seems to be a lull in the action, God's thoughtful and faithfully provides. Now before we go on to the next stage, the really big important part, I want to pause and reflect on this just a little bit. Just a little bit, a couple takeaways from God's provision here. First is that God provides for what lies ahead. God provides for what lies ahead. Another way to put this, God has in mind what happens after we're saved. God doesn't save us and say, here you go, good luck, you're on your own sport. No, God saves us. And you even see a description of our salvation in a place like Ephesians 2. And after we're saved, it says God has prepared good works for us to live out our salvation. So this text here, God treats their time after Egypt as a foregone conclusion. They will go on after they've been set free. And Israel was to go on by, in part, looking back to see what God had done for them. So for us, God has saved us. He saved us through the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus, who delivered us from God's judgment of death by dying in our place. But it's that act of redemption that gives us the grounds. It gives us the basis. It gives us the motivation for our obedience to God moving forward. So friends, this is gospel motivation. I will obey and follow because God loves me. Not, I will obey and follow in order for God to love me. You see that difference there. Because, not in order to. So friend, do you want to obey God to earn his favor? Or do you want to obey God because you already have it? Knowing Christ, knowing his finished work, gives us a sure foundation that we do indeed have God's favor. So we can be confident that we have it. 
And we can be confident to obey the Lord, even when he leads us to places that don't make any sense. So, friends, you ask yourself, what acts of your obedience to God, of your faithfulness to God, look strange to an unbelieving world? It's a good thing. This is a good thing to reflect on, good thing to discuss, maybe at lunch. What acts of obedience that you're doing might look strange to an unbelieving world? Another takeaway about God's provision here. See, God provides for what lies ahead. We also see God provides for our good. God provides for our good. Now, this might be just an obvious thing. Another sky is blue comment. God provides for our good. But this isn't always obvious in the moment, is it? Who among the Israelites knew that they would end up spending 40 years in the wilderness? How much more important then would it be that they had this plunder from the Egyptians? How much more important would it be that they had these ongoing reminders of who they were and what God had done for them? God led them in a way that seems backwards. But he said repeatedly that he would get them to the promised land. Our God, friends, is the one who sees what we can't. He knows what we need before we ask him. He knows what we need in order for us to look more like Jesus. He knows what we need in order to be sustained through trials. He provides for our good. The problem is, our definition of good doesn't always align with his definition of good. So, we humble ourselves before God's good and wise plan, promises, and provision. God provides for our good. Last thing we could take away, just from this even filler text time, God provides, and God provides for his glory. The Egyptian plunder came not from the Israelites. It came because of God. The firstborn, the Passover feast, the unleavened bread feast, even a bonus, Joseph's bones being carried out. What an image. These guys' bones are 400 years old, and they're carrying him back to the promised land. All these things reminded them of God's redeeming and faithful love, not their accomplishments. God's provision gets him the glory. So, God's provision here displays for us that Romans 8.28 is true. All things work together for good. And it displays that Revelation 5.13 is true. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, and might forever and ever. Our good, his glory. We could say even further that our good is his glory. So we're not even to the best part yet, friends. Israel's trapped, and God set it up. Have we put the cart before the horse? We just finished about how God uh, provided for life after Egypt, but reading where he led them, we might have talked too soon. So let's pick up chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the hosts of Israel moved and went behind them. 
And the pillar of God moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the sky without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into the sea, and the Lord threw them, the Egyptians, into the midst of the sea, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Old Testament points back to this event constantly. This event is central, not just in movie history. This event is central to Israel's history. So we read in other places that in Nehemiah 9.10, that it was at the Red Sea that God made a name for himself that remains to this day. We read in Isaiah 63, verse 12, that God received everlasting renown at the Red Sea. So friends, you can't reflect or read the Bible on this point without concluding that this was an act of God. This was no natural event. This was the God who rules over all creation. We see walls of water, dry ground, the slowing of chariots, the perfect timing. This is all the hand of the Lord. Now, to be candid with you, as I read about the Red Sea after the Passover, just in the entire book of Exodus, I was wondering, how does the Red Sea fit into this story? Is it another act of salvation? Because we had the first point, we had this point currently, it's called God delivers. This is the second point of the sermon. But hadn't God already delivered Israel? So is this another deliverance, or is this confirming what God had already done? Well, I think it's partially both, and I think it points to something beyond it. So in a real way, this is another salvific deliverance event. Maybe to put it a better way, the Red Sea crossing is a part of God's overall work to deliver his people from Egypt and deliver his people from his judgment. So like the plagues that came already, God announced beforehand that he would get glory over Pharaoh and make his name known in what he's about to do. Like he did in the plagues, God would judge the Egyptians for their sin. This time, judgment would come through the form of water. So we see a poetic justice from the sovereign Lord here. As the Egyptians drowned the Israelite babies in water, so they will be drowned in water themselves. As in the story of Noah, water was used for God's judgment. With the waters of judgment surrounding Noah, God sent an east wind to dry the earth. With the waters of judgment surrounding the people of Israel here, God sent a wind, literally the same word as spirit, to split the sea, bring dry ground, bring them safely to the other side, and then drown their enemies. Like the flood with Noah, like the final plague, and so here, God brings salvation through his judgment. Salvation through his judgment. So the Red Sea, it is another act of deliverance, a part of God's overall deliverance of Israel. But it's also 
a confirmation of what God has already done for them. So as much as the Red Sea was a display of God's power to Pharaoh, it's also a display of his power and love to his people. So remember how the story began. You go all the way back to verse 10, chapter 14. How the story began. God shows up. He tells them, I'm going to free you. And how did the Israelites respond? They didn't want it. Thanks, but no thanks. We'd rather stay. The Bible is full of sass, if you just pay attention. So here's another moment. What they tell Moses. Look what they said. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What are those, uh, what are those big pointy things in Egypt? Do you remember? What are they called? Pyramids. Yeah. You know what the pyramids are? It's like ba- they're basically big, giant graves. That's what the Egyptians were known for. Of course there was space for uh, graves. It was in the desert. So here... God was about to do something for his people in a display of his power and his grace even while they didn't want him to do it. This confirmed, as Moses said in verse 14, that the Lord fought for them. It confirmed that saving them was not their work, it was God's work. And he saved them decisively. They didn't just walk across the Red Sea They walked on dry ground. They didn't just get the promise that they'd be freed from the Egyptians. They got to see the Egyptians washed up on the shore. They were completely saved, without a doubt, and it was nothing but from the Lord's hand. They got to see their enemy was fully and finally defeated. God brought them to the Red Sea to definitively prove once and for all that he had freed them and won the victory. Confirmation of his love. Proving decisive victory. Now we said, crossing of the Red Sea was a watershed moment for Israel. Pun sort of intended there. Instead of having to ride a bike without handles, which I can never do. I was, I'm always too scared to just let go. Instead of riding a bike, even with one handle, which is still hard to do well and for a long time, Israel now had two handles to hold on to that reassured them of God's steadfast saving love. They had the Passover and they had the Red Sea. They could be confident going forward in every step or in every pedal of their journey that God was for them. Now, if you remember, we said the Red Sea crossing is a part of God's bigger act of deliverance of his people. We said also it's a confirmation of how he already feels towards his people, of what he's already done for them. But we also said it points to something else. points to something else. Now, our call to worship came from Isaiah chapter 43. You have it in your bulletin. You want to turn back there, you can. Now, this portion of Isaiah 43, it You notice how it begins. It begins by describing the Exodus. Describing different things that God had done. And then it closes. It says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. So now, friends, the Red Sea, the Passover, they're good handlebars. They provided assurance They provided steadiness, but they also provided hope for the future, hope for something bigger. And so the Exodus points beyond itself. And what's bigger, it came like the first Exodus, even while we didn't ask for it, even while we preferred to stay enslaved to our sin. Book of 1 John says, not that we loved God, but God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for his sins. And we see at the baptism of Jesus that Jesus was immersed in water, the symbol of God's judgment. And we see at the cross what was the symbol of judgment became the reality of God's judgment. Jesus stepping into the waters of God's judgment, and it was out of that ultimate judgment that God brought light, life, and salvation. You see, Israel was only freed from Egypt 
They weren't freed from sin. Israel was only freed from death in that moment. They were not freed from eternal death. They would need lambs and goats and bulls to sacrifice year after year. God had yet to fully and finally free and deliver his people from sin and death. But that is what he has done in the once for all perfect sacrifice of his own son. At the cross, God saved his people. Just like he saved at Passover and confirmed that finished work in the Red Sea. So at the cross, Jesus' work to save his people was done. But at the resurrection, God confirmed that this work is finished. Two handlebars, the cross and the empty tomb. This is our new and better assurance that we've been forgiven from our sin, delivered from judgment, and saved from our death. Our Savior died and our Savior rose again. Third point, Israel responds. This is the shortest point. Now, it's appropriate, friends, that the third point comes at this point, at this moment in the story. Now, you may have heard that Christianity, Christianity is good news because unlike other religions, which starts off with the command of do, Christianity begins with the indicative, the truth of done. God delivers, then we respond. So notice for Israel, after all this is done, then they believe. God delivered when they didn't want it. And then look at verse 31 in chapter 14. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. That's the same works in our response to Christ. He finished the work. We receive it by faith. It's faith that unites us to him and all that he's accomplished. So we call people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be saved from sin. God's judgment of their sin they will be saved from by him. They will be saved through Christ from death. And this is what we call you today if you have not done so. Receive Christ by faith. You want to know what that means, what that means for your life going forward. This is literally what we're here for. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to somebody who looks like they know what they're doing and looks like they love Jesus. Now this morning you might be like, the Israelites, before God split the Red Sea. You don't want Jesus. What you got going doesn't seem all that bad. Might as well go back to Egypt. Now let me say that every person here who has trusted in Christ will tell you that we used to think the same way. We used to think, I- I'm all right. I don't, I don't really need it and I don't want it. Well, every person here who does trust in Christ will now say that there is nothing and no one sweeter than the Lord Jesus. Nothing calmer, nothing more secure, no one else who saves. Friend, believe in Jesus. Receive what he's done. And when we do that, we live it out. We then follow him as Lord, leaving behind the sin he died for, leaving behind the sin he came to save us from. Israel's response, they believed. But Israel's response goes beyond receiving the work God had done for them. They respond also by going on. God knew that they would, remember. So chapter 15, you look there. Moses tells God that he can tell everybody that this is his song. And Israel's response, they go on knowing several things. They go on knowing that they are free. Look at a couple of verses. 14, verse 30, the Lord saved them. 15, verse 1, the Lord has triumphed gloriously. 15, verse 7, the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your enemies. 15, verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. They go on knowing they've been freed. They know what God has done for them. So brothers and sisters, Do you know what Christ has done for you?
I remember hearing someone tell a story. Uh, they're going up to talk to their mentor, meet with their mentor, the person who's discipling them, who's brought them up in the faith. And that particular day, they just weren't feeling it. They were down, gloomy for some reason, and couldn't remember why. It's often the case with us. I uh, can't remember the exact reason why we're upset. And so his mentor asked him, you know, what's wrong? And said, told him, I don't really know, and uh, just kind of down. And his mentor asked him, are you going to hell anymore? And the guy said, no. And his mentor responded, well, then what's wrong? Over <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not to say that, you know, when we come to Christ, we're to ignore all of our problems. But it does put it into perspective, doesn't it? And we can add to that. We're not going to hell anymore. And we're going to heaven to see the Lord. So, Know your freedom. This is a joy that nothing here, not even suffering, can touch. Freedom that Christ has won. Friends, go on knowing Christ has set you free from sin, not just Egypt. Set you free from sin. The guilt of it, the power of it. This gives us joy and reliefs, but you know what it also gives us? It gives us freedom. What a novel concept. Freedom gives us freedom. We read about this in Romans 6. It's also in the bulletin. Going on knowing our freedom means that in our struggle with sin, and friend, if you are not struggling at some level, that might not be a good sign because it might be a sign you're at peace with your sin. But our freedom from sin tells us that we don't have to give sin power it doesn't have. Don't do that. Don't give sin power it does not have. Christ has freed us from its slavery. The struggle with it is lost from the get-go if you think you are powerless against it. You are not. Jesus rose from the dead, defeating it. So keep getting up. He can certainly cause you to continue to repent, to continue to gain more and more victory over sin. Jesus freed us from the guilt and power of sin. Know that freedom. Israel went on after the Red Sea. They went on knowing their freedom. And they went on knowing their God. You look throughout chapter 15. It's just nothing short of a major theology lesson. This is a pattern of scripture. God reveals, uh, God, God moves, he acts, and then he reveals his character. His acts then are explained by speech. So what does Israel see about God here? They see God is strong, that no army can stand against this warrior, that God is glorious in power, verse 6. In verse 10, they see God controls creation with a mere breath. See verse 11, that God is unique, that he's holy, that he's majestic. See verse 13, God loves with a steadfast love. See verses 14 and 15, God is the God of all the earth. You can pick any one of these, drill down, and you will not find the bottom. Israel went on knowing their God. So here's a people who were saved by God. Here's a people who were captivated by their God. So brothers and sisters, saved by Christ, are you going on in this same way, knowing your God? A couple questions, a litmus test for that. Is the Lord regularly a part of your normal conversation? Just the name of God. Can people tell you're a Christian just by what you talk about? Are you regularly learning new things about God? These people went on knowing their God after they'd been saved. Let's be on that same trajectory. Finally, Israel continued their journey knowing they belonged to God. Knowing they belonged to God. So you look at verse 13, or verse 16, excuse me, 16. They describe themselves there. They say that they are the people whom God has purchased. The last lines of the song express confidence in God fulfilling his purposes, that he will bring them home and he will reign forever and ever. 
Friends, this is for our instruction. We go on knowing we belong to God. He has purchased us not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, his son. So question, does your life give the aroma, give off the scent that you belong to God? You belong to him, body and soul. In freeing us, God has bought us, purchased us for himself. And belonging to him looks like being holy as he is holy. Belonging to him looks like glorying in our Redeemer as we sing from time to time. Glorying in the one who purchased us for himself. If we belong to God, we can live out what Moses told the Israelites back early in chapter 14. Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. You belong to the Lord. If he bought us at such a cost as the blood of his own son, he will keep us. So this point in Israel's journey, it's much like the current point in our journey. They weren't in the promised land yet, but they had been redeemed by God. Delivered from death, freed from slavery, Saved from his judgment. Friends, we are in that same point, but on an eternal scale. Delivered from eternal death. Free from the slavery to sin. Now, they weren't in the promised land yet, but they were on their way, as are we. They could fear not, stand firm, be still, knowing God was with them every step of their journey. We go on knowing the same. God is with us by his spirit, leading us in holiness, leading us to look back at what Christ has done and to look forward to the true promised land he's leading us to. He is faithful every step of the journey. Friends, let's pray. God, help us not to just hear your word, but to be doers of it as well. Help us to respond to your word with our lives. God, we see here who you are, a strong deliverer, great in mercy, acting to save us even when we did not ask for it, even when we did not love you, even when we sinned against you. Christ died for us. So God, we simply receive what he has done, and we are thankful. But God, you've purchased us. So we want to act like we belong to you, Act in response to your grace, in gratitude, and in worship. Help us do that. Give us strength in every stride by your spirit who dwells with us as we're leading us home. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.